welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Please stay standing as I read John, 1 John chapter 1, and it's verses, we're going to read verses 5 through 10 today in this section as John teaches the churches. Hear with me the word of God. John wrote, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. May God's holy word have its great impact on our hearts as we hear it preached. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, let me ask you this, as a Christian, what do you do when you sin? What do you do when you know you've walked outside the will of God, blatantly or maybe not so much? What do you do when you sin and the Spirit convicts you? What should you do is the the subject of what John talks about in this first part of his epistle. I mean, sometimes we don't handle it the way we should, right? Sometimes as Christians... uh, Sin is something we do, and maybe we we get into old patterns. We get into habits that they're dark habits. We know we're doing consistently in our life something we shouldn't do, but we we ignore it. We kind of compartmentalize it. Maybe you do that. I've had episodes in my life when I've done that. Maybe uh, you rationalize it. Maybe you tell yourself certain things about what you're doing or what what you're convicted about that let you minimize it and call it something else. Maybe you even do that with other people that call you out on that. Maybe you uh, refine it or maybe even further, maybe you, uh, you actually deny that it's really a problem. You claim closeness with God, but there's almost a double life going on. That's not the way it should be, beloved. And John here in his loving bluntness talks about how we should handle sin. And in this passage, he reveals three different ways in which we don't handle it well. And he gives us a calling back to how we can come back into a fellowship walk with God and deal with that. So John, the the deep but the practical apostle. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, We started talking about it last week. This whole passage, in terms of a a section of the apostles' thinking, actually goes from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through chapter 2 and verse 2. The chapter break there was not in the original uh, text, so you know we put it in there in English to kind of make the thoughts packaged a little bit better. But there's no break between chapter 1, verse uh, 10, and chapter 2 and verse 1. So they all go through together. And uh, last week I, I, I began by going through uh, verse 5, and, I, and I'll review the outline, and you should see it on the app, and, but also on the screen behind me. I talked about two things, the big picture of the passage, and the big picture of this passage uh, has to do with, with the, the issue of sin and the life of believers. I've shown you that I believe that this epistle is written to believers. It's not uh, uh, structured around speaking directly to non-believers who were false Christians. It's written to believers, but some of them may not have been true believers. And so there's always that shadow question as John deals with it. 
But he writes to believers. He writes many times and he calls them little children. And he uses first person plural throughout this passage, for example. And he talks about we as believers. If we say, verse 6, and if we walk in the light, verse 7, and if we confess our sins, verse 9, and so on. So he's, he's including all the believers in his words. But make no mistake about it, I showed you last week that the subject of this whole section of verses is about sin and, and it's showing up in the life of the Christian. There's seven verses in this stretch and ten times the word sin where sins shows up. So if you're a Bible marker, I mean, it's pretty clear that's what the text is about. So we know it's written to believers, some of whom may have had a questionable relationship with God. And when we know it's written about how to deal with sin in your life as a believer. So that's the big picture. And then last week I showed you that before he ever talks about sins, he talks about the Savior. Before he ever talks about us, he talks about Jesus. And before ever he talks about things going wrong in our life, he shows us this bright portrait of holiness. And that's verse 5, which we studied last time, where, where John said, this is the message we've heard from him. Who is him? Jesus, when he was on earth preaching and, and, and bringing out his teaching, when John was an eyewitness to that. This is the message we often heard from him, as I showed you last time. And we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it's important that you understand you, you cannot see sin for what it is until you see Jesus for who he is. You can't make any sense of morality either. And boy, that's a reminder to a society plumbing in moral confusion day after day. The reason is we've lost sight of an ultimate standard giver that is God, the God of the scripture. All of us know that. And so John says, before I talk with you about your battle with sin, I want to remind you that he is the perfect, bright portrait of holiness. It says, he says here that God, the God we've come to know, the God of the scriptures is light. By that, he wasn't talking about the glory of God that shows up when God comes down on a mountain or into a moment. It's not talking about his visible glory. Light there is a metaphor for the moral perfection of God, his sinlessness, his purity. It's his moral perfection. In fact, he is so pure that in him there is no darkness at all. There is no element of sin in God at all. So light here talks about the moral perfection of God. Darkness is a metaphor to talk about sin, particularly our sin. So God is light. In him there is no sin. We, however, battle with darkness and, and often battle with sin. So he speaks of God first, and he reminds us that God is the standard. And so we talked about last time, he is the standard. It's he, not we. We don't set the moral laws in our world. We don't get to say what's wrong or right. We don't get to say what's, what's sin or isn't. We don't get to say how we should live our life or how we shouldn't. God is the standard giver. And yet we, we, we flip that around constantly because the essence of sin as we saw in Genesis 3 was the devil came into that whole human encounter with Adam and Eve and said did God say so the ultimate temptation is to believe that we can still reset the standards redirect our lives we can retranslate what sin is and we become the standard and when we do that everything shatters and when we understand that we can Repent of the ultimate sin, which is saying, I know what's, what, what right and wrong is. No, we need to go and remember that he is the standard. He alone. Now, as believers, we, we turn that around all the time. And beginning in verse 6 and going all the way through verse 10, now John shows us what happens when we turn that around. I would call this section the broken pathways of sin. He showed us the big picture in the passage, sin and the life of the believer. Then he showed us the bright portrait of holiness. You, you begin by understanding that God is the standard. We are not. We follow his moral call. We don't retranslate it ourselves. But when we, we, we violate that, then we get into some, some broken pathways of sin from verse 6 to verse 10. And I'll break this up for you real quick. There's three broken pathways. And they're all identified by the same phrase, and that is, if we 
that, that phrase, if we, take a look at verse 6, there's the first one. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. The first thing we're going to discover is that the first broken pathway is when we ignore sin. Then you go farther down to verse 8. If we say we have no sin, that's the second broken pathway. I'll kind of tell you where I'm going ahead of time. That's where we rationalize about sin. And then finally down to verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's where we get to denying sin completely and, and, and believing that we actually don't have a problem with sin because we're not sinners. So if you follow the phrase, if we say, you see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 8, and you see it finally in verse 10, if we say, that marks the three wrong or broken pathways. Three things believers are tempted to do in, in, in terms of mishandling sin. They're the broken pathways. Each of them has an error attached that I'm going to explain that gets us into, into, the, into problems. And then each of them has an alternative and a pathway out. Sometimes it's clear. Verse 6 is, is the first problem. Verse 7, right after it, is the solution. How to get out of the problem in verse 6. In verse 8 is the second problem. And in verse 9 is the solution for how to walk out of that deception. So John convicts you and then he leads you to freedom. Points things out and then shows you and points you to a pathway of spiritual health. So I hope you see how the passage kind of open ups, opens up. If we say the three markers, we ignore sin, we rationalize it, or we outright deny it. Now the first two, uh, I think, talk about things that show up in the life of, of every Christian that I know. All of us are tempted to kind of ignore sin rather than deal with it. And all of us have had times in our life when we rationalize sin and we want to, want to make it less than it is. Those frequently rise up in the life of every believer I know. I know that because they've frequently risen up in my life, and I think I'm just like you. Do you? I am just like you. That's what qualifies me to teach you the Word of God. I'm here in brokenness, but I'm opening the text and talking from my own life. Now, the third one, denying sin altogether, I believe actually is so serious that if that's happening in your life, you may not know Jesus at all. And that's where John goes frequently in this epistle. He talks about the Christian life and the Christian battles, but there are times when he talks about certain behaviors or certain beliefs that if you hold them consistently, they may mean you are not even a Christian. So John regularly brings us into a confrontation with that big possibility as well. So that's the groundwork. So let's take a look at the broken pathways now that I've explained how your Bible reads and how the passage opens up. The first one, the first broken pathway is ignoring sin. And that's verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. To explain each of these three broken pathways, I'm going to show you the action. I'm going to explain how, how we get into deception. And then I'm going to show you the alternative, the pathway out that John gives us. So the idea of ignoring sin is brought out in verse 6. The action, how would I put it into words? It's a situation where a believer says they love Jesus, but they sin in ways that they choose not to deal with. They say they love Jesus, but they sin in ways that they choose not to deal with. This is sin that crops up more than once. This is sin that becomes patterned. It's sin that they're fully convicted of by the Spirit, but they, can, they are choosing at a certain point in their life not to deal with it. And therefore, in essence, you could say they're living kind of a double life. That's a serious situation to be in as a Christian. But as a pastor, you see it a lot. And like I said, believers struggle with it. How do I unpack it from verse 6? He says, if we say we have fellowship with him. What is, what is fellowship in terms of what the Bible uh, tells us about? Well, it's very important that you understand something that happens 
when we sin as a Christian, and it's very important that you're careful about it. When a Christian sins, our sonship, our adopted relationship with God, the fact that we're in the family of God is not changed. I'm so glad for that. Sin is a struggle for me still. I still have the flesh. I'm a new man in Christ. I have a new mind in Christ. I want to please God. And, and I walk in obedience to God through many dimensions of my life. But sin happens to me, and I commit sin. If every time I committed sin, I was thrown out of the family of God, what a recipe for hopelessness. But you see, our sonship, the fact that we're in the family of God, that we're adopted into his family, does not change when you sin. God doesn't take his sinning children out of his family when they sin any more than you would disown your child when they disobey you. You wouldn't do that. His love for us is far greater, and it's sealed by the blood of Christ. I mean, aren't you glad, like I preached to you last week, that the forgiveness of God given to us by grace through the atoning work of Jesus is permanent? Remember remember me laying that onto your hearts last week? It's the greatest treasure of the believer. So you need to understand the reality that sin doesn't break our sonship. But listen to this. It does break our fellowship with God. Sin grieves him. It breaks his heart. It puts a barrier between us and God in terms of fellowship. And so when we talk about fellowship, it's a relationship. Now here's a Christian in verse 6 that says, I have a healthy relationship with God. Fellowship in this, in this text talks about a relationship that, that has something that means something. Fellowship in the Greek word meant a sharing in common and a deep sharing. Fellowship in our day and age sometimes means showing up at the same place at 1030 on a Sunday morning. <laughs> it means being in the same room where other Christians are. But no, it's, it's a lot more than being in the same room at a church. When we gather together, we we share something in our our, our personal bond with Jesus Christ. We share our love for him. We fellowship in our love for him, or we should be. So here's a Christian that's fooling themselves. They're saying, my relationship with God is a relationship of fellowship. That's what they say, verse 6. If we say, we have fellowship with God, and yet there's a part of our life where we walk in darkness We're a living contradiction. Remember I said light is moral purity, darkness is sin. Now take a look at the words or the phrase when we walk in darkness. That has to do with with sin that that you've, you've gotten yourself involved in consistently. The Greek word is in the present active indicative. It means an ongoing set of actions fallen into a a sinful habit or a habitual lifestyle. And, and he says here, when, when, when you really look at that, if you were going to be fully honest, you would have to say, this part of my life is dark. It's, it's darkness. It's sin. It's not purity. And in our battle with sin, there are times when there are places and patterns in your life that, that are really great and deep battles. Some people would look at this and just say, well, that just talks about the, the really deep and dark moral sins of life. Visible addictions like substance abuse issues or less visible addictions like pornography addiction or whatever. They would call it moral parts of your life going out of control. And I would say, yes, that's, that's part of it. But don't forget that there are also a, lot, a long list of more respectable sins that I would call relational sins, that people believe that they can compartmentalize off and still go to church and still be part of fellowships and still believe their relationship with God was fine, but they won't admit that they've developed a pattern of anger in their lives against other believers. Or they develop patterns of handling things with their spouse that reflect anger and bitterness and hurt. Or they've developed patterns even in the fellowship of deep and damaging gossip. And they can kind of compartmentalize that off. So, I mean, you might say, well, he's talking here about things like like an internet addiction. And and, and so this is a person that if you took a look at their internet search history, they'd have some, some 
places in that search history that would be very, very dark. Well, what about your relational search history? If somebody were able to, to trace back the words that came out of your lips and then trace farther the damage that they caused to lives, either that you intended or you didn't even intend, that's an area of life too that's out of control. So let's, let's be honest. But this is not occasional. This is getting into the realm of habitual. And he's saying here that people play a game with God and with others when they say, I have fellowship with him. I love Jesus but there are certain areas of my life that I've chosen to ignore that become patterns. When he says that happens, he says you lie and you do not practice the truth. Now he's talking there about the fact that you're living a double life. There's parts of your world that you know don't match the will of God. Now, of course, when we interpret 1 John, there's always a serious question about this, and interpreters have struggled with it ever since John wrote his epistle. The the question has to do with, do you apply this to the life of a a true Christian or a false Christian? It's a difficult way, it's a difficult question, rather, and it's difficult to really open the Scriptures consistently with John and always get it right. David Allen, in, in his commentary on this, probably puts it into the better into a better phrase than I can. This is what he said, quote, a big question concerns whether John intends us to understand his statement to apply to Christians or unbelievers. He says, the letter is written to believers. I, I, I've shown you that in my introduction. The letter is written to believers. The issue is whether a true believer can, quote, walk in darkness. Without going too far afield, we need to be reminded of two truths. First, if someone within the church lives contrary to the gospel on a regular basis, there is good reason to question the genuineness of his or her conversion. I'll stop there for a minute. I think there's a lot of truth to that. If, if a person who claims to, to love Christ and know Christ, but they live in evident darkness contrary to the gospel on a regular basis, he says there's good reason to question the genuineness of their conversion. I put it, I'll put it this way. Can a Christian live in habitual, clear, obvious sin? I would say not for long and certainly not for life. Maybe you can jot that down in your mind. Certainly not for long, not without conviction, not without battle, not without seeking to make it right. They cannot live a double life for long and certainly not for life. But then he goes, secondly, however, it is possible for Christians to sin. It's also possible for Christians to live in periods of carnality. That is true. It's happened in my life. I see it in in, in the lives of other believers. It is possible to live in periods of carnality and yet be truly saved. The Bible affirms both of these realities. Though verse 6 that we're talking about here, he says, could easily be referencing somebody who's not a Christian. Contextually, it could also refer to someone who is a Christian. Notice that John says, quote, we lie. We're lying about what? About being in fellowship with God while walking in darkness. Furthermore, we are not practicing the truth. He does not say we do not know the truth. End of quote. So that's just a section from his commentary I found helpful. It's a difficult question. But regardless of how you answer it, the point of the passage is don't stay there. Come out of the darkness and move toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a believer and you've come under conviction in the last few minutes because I've been describing an area of your life, I can predict a couple other possibilities about your experience right now. I can predict something about your relationship with other Christians, and that is that if you're involved in habitual sin right now, if you're in a a period of carnality, I can predict that a lot of your relationships with spiritually sensitive Christians are distant because they pick it up. More people know than you think that you're not right with God. You say, that bothers me. Good. It's the way God designed Christian relationships to work. 
We think we can actually live a double life. We think we can let our battle with sin go undealt with. We think we can just go on. But no, more people know under the sensitivity of the Spirit than you realize. And so there may be distance or there may be concern. There there may be a detachment. There may be questions. Thank God if those questions are followed by somebody coming alongside you and asking, how are things really going? Or can I share with you something that I just wonder, is this a battle in your life right now? So that may be true about you and other Christians right now. There's maybe a distance. And in terms of your walk with God, I think you're probably going to be dealing with a lot of doubt in the quiet moments of your life. The guilt that comes from being a true believer and being convicted by the true spirit that dwells within you. If that conviction and pressing in your heart isn't going on I've got questions oh that's the love of God so it's possible to say I have fellowship with him but walk in darkness in an area of your life and if you're doing that you're lying you're lying to yourself and you're lying to others and you're not practicing the truth you say how do I get out of that so glad you asked that's the action now let me lead you to the alternative it's verse 7 but If we walk in the light, notice the contrast, verse six, walking in darkness in an area or maybe more than one area of our lives. Paul said, John says rather, let, let us walk instead in the light as he, God is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. So what's the alternative to denying, to, to ignoring sin? Here, it's pretty simple. Admit it. Admit it to God. Come into the light of what his word really says about what you're doing. Go ahead and step out of darkness and stop denying it and stop, stop ignoring it and come into the light. Walk into the light of what God says about it. Move toward him. Open it up to him. Be honest to him. Come in confession and, 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 and repentance to him. That's where it all starts to heal. You see, Psalm 119, 125, written, I think, by David. We can't prove it for sure, but I think he wrote it. And he wrote it out of the whole depth of his battle with sin in his own life. Psalm 119 and verse 105 if, if you took this one verse and you just said, Lord, let me live this out more than anything other, you would be someone who would be able to be led out of habits of sin. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's such a power, powerful text. I'm so glad I memorized that when I was a young Christian. I'm so glad that a mentor of mine taught me to do, he used an old phrase. He says, I'm going to teach you how to keep short accounts with God. I said, what in the world does that mean? He says, I'm going to teach you how to deal with sin as it happens in your life. I'm going to teach you the freedom of confession. When God's word shines its light onto a pathway that your feet are taking, That's your opportunity to acknowledge it and say, Lord, I know that's not what you want from my life. I want to step back and get back in step with you. I want to experience the cleansing power of your blood over that. And I want you to help me walk more in step with you. He says, don't let sin go long in your life. Confess it as soon as the spirit convicts you. Bring it out into the light, he would say. The light of God's word. Get it out on the table. I found that you can build a habit of, of ignoring sin if you just don't deal with it, and then it, it builds more and more layers of behavior, and then it's a lot harder to confess and come back out of, isn't it? So admit it. Step into the light of what God's Word says about it. Let the, the lamp of the Word shine on it and just admit it. Now take a look at verse 7. He says, if we walk in the light, if we step into the light of what God's word says about it, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What happens when you get more honest with sin and you do that with a believer you know you can trust? Now you no longer have a secret. Now you can walk into openness and a solution. 
So what happens to your fellowship? Remember I said there's a disconnect for, with, with sensitive Christians who may know you're not living the life you want to live. That disconnection is gone, and you now have fellowship with others again. And then the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses you from all sin. Now people might say, well, this is a little confusing. Does, does this mean you get saved again? No. When did the blood of Jesus cleanse you from all sin? The moment you found Christ. Did you become totally forgiven or only forgiven for your sins in the past? Totally, right? The forgiveness of God was fully applied to you. You were brought into his family. You experienced what the Bible calls justification. But the, the power of that cross can be freshly applied to your heart as you bring things out into the light. And you can taste that forgiveness afresh, is what I'm saying. So he says, if you are ignoring sin, if you're living a double life, if there's a part of your life that you're just not being honest about, you're lying and you're not practicing the truth. Come walk into the light, he says, verse 7. Your relationships with others will change and the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse you from all sin. You'll, test, you'll taste all over again the greatness of his cross. I love the fact that it says all. Christian, you can't fall into any sin that out sins the grace and the, and the power of God to cleanse it. You just can't. I love the word cleanse to katharizo. It meant to clean out a stain. You say, well, I thought that that was done by the cross of Jesus when I got saved. Yes, in the eyes of God, you are, you are spotless and you will be forever. But this is not how God sees you. I think that he's, he's talking here about the stain that you see. When you fall into sin as a Christian, you get convicted and you're heartbroken over it. And you, 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 you feel that, that, that you're, you're no longer walking in the way that God wants you to. And all of that's from the Spirit. But sometimes you, you're obsessed with the fact that you've stained your life in a certain way. Hey, that can be taken right to the cross too. I mean, so many believers who say they've fallen too far. Impossible. So many believers who say their life can't be the same again since they blew it so badly. Not possible. And the stain is too deep. Not possible. Wow. So that's the first one. The broken pathway of sin that he talks about here is ignoring sin. Has this been kind of painful so far? It hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. Good, Christian. Good. Let me give you another one. All right, ready? Let's go to verse 8. He goes to the second broken pathway of dealing with sin. If we say, talking to believers, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What's this all about? First, all, first again, the action and then the alternative in the next verse. Verse 8 is talking about rationalizing sin. This is my interpretation. You may look at this. You may have a different view as you study the book, but one of the commentators I read this week uh, kind of put it this way. He, uh, he said, let me find a, the comment here. I may not have it. No, can't find it. But anyway, the basic point he was trying to say was that the language here indicates that someone's pointed out a sin to you and you are basically saying, that's not sin in my life. So it's the idea of rationalizing it. It implies someone is calling out what you're doing as a sin, but you discount it, you rationalize it. Here's the commentator, he said this, quote, imagine a man who's doctored, tells him he's terminally ill and he has only a few weeks to live, but the man refuses to believe it. How foolish, even tragic, would that be? How much more foolish would it be for a person to deny the fact that they have a cancer of the soul? The language John uses here implies our own responsibility for our deception. We ourselves become the deceivers and we are responsible for leading ourselves astray. You could translate this, we lead ourselves astray. I would use a modern English word, we rationalize. We try to say sin isn't sin. 
The first person knows it's sin. They just don't want to deal with it. The second person starts to redefine it. Remember that where we take, where we say, God's no longer the standard, I'm the standard. Now, how do you lead yourself astray? By rationalizing. Now, it's pretty easy to do because our whole society is built on rationalizing away wrong. Isn't that true? Our whole society is a rationalizing society. Sin is no longer sin. It's simply a a result of social damage. Or it's a result of psychological damage. Or it's a result of situational uh, harm or being deprived. It's a result of all kinds of things. And the church is kind of getting involved in, in some of that rationalization too. Um, unfortunately, there are more progressive or liberal churches today that have bought into the psychological and sociological arguments of our society. And they say, for example, that certain passages, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New, about sexuality, they really don't point to certain sexual acts or beliefs as sin, those passages on human sexuality referred to ancient sexual practices in a certain context back then, but they don't apply today. That's rationalization. And, and we as Christians, we're in a society that rationalizes away sin. And so we can fall prey to it too. I know good Christians There's areas of their life that's obvious sin, but they're saying, psychologically, this is the way I am. They use a therapeutic excuse that they got from somebody in the therapeutic world. And therefore, because of their background and their experience and how how they are formed psychologically, this is the way I am. What's happened there? Verse 5, they've decided to step into the place of the standard setter or some expert that they quote is now in the place of the standard setter. And yet God's clear word says otherwise. All kinds of Christians falling into that trap. Other Christians, are not, they're not psychologically rationalizing, rationalizing they're comparatively rationalizing. This is a real subtle thing for Christian leaders. They can, be, they can say, well, there's, there's so many other areas of my life where I am obeying God. And uh, I just don't want to regard this as sin. Then they get into the pragmatic rationalization. And that is, you know, you may say this is a a sin in my life, but it's having no effect on my ministry. All kinds of people in my generation of ministry have carried on in ministry by by rationalizing, but God is still using me so greatly. It doesn't seem to have any effect. Therefore, it can't be an issue the way you pointed out in my life. And now we've entered into a time where more Christian leaders are falling and being revealed to have lived double lives and rationalized their sin than ever before. No, verse 5 says, He is light. We are not the standard. So, In verse 8, you've got people who, even when they have their sin pointed out, deceive themselves. They lead themselves astray. They rationalize. And the truth about the situation there is not in them. They're not really admitting, even as a biblical thinker, that what they have is a problem biblically. So what's the alternative to that? Verse 9. Again, it's come, come into the light of what God says. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great text. Often we use this for non-Christians. And you know what? You can, because if you're talking about salvation, that is the truth about what happens positionally when you get saved. However, in the context of 1 John 1, I think he's talking about sinning believers. 
and he's giving them a pathway out of rationalizing. And he says, no, you're not the standard giver. You're not the standard decider. You're not the rationalizer with all the answers. If God's word says it's clearly sin, come out and confess it. If we confess our sins, confess in the Greek, homologao, it means to me, it means to say the same thing as, and it means that you just let God's word be God's word. Not your word against God's word, not some psychotherapist's word against God's word, not your parents' words, who are often more indulgent of you than God is, and who, who want to rationalize with you what you're doing too because they don't want to lose a relationship with you. Not your best friend's words about your lifestyle over God's word. No, God's words over your lifestyle. God's words over what you're doing. Come out and just confess and agree with God as hard as, as, as it may be. If you confess your sins, look what happens. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another reason I think he's talking about Christians uh, there is he uses the word sins, which talks about individual acts. It talks about portions of your life. Now the good news is, Again, just like I said in verse 7, there is nothing you can get involved in as a Christian that can outrun the power of God to restore you and forgive it. It's already forgiven at the cross, but this in verse 9, I think, talks about re-experiencing the power of the cross in whatever it is you need to bring out into the light with God. And look what God is always going to say. He's going to be faithful and just to forgive you your sins. What does that all mean? Faithful and just. I've always been kind of confused about why John would put those in there, but now I know. Think about those two words, faithful and just, for a minute. God is faithful means he's faithful to his promises concerning, concerning his willingness to forgive your sin. He forgave you through his son when you got saved, and now if you come in repentance and you want an area of your life to be brought back under his control, shame does not have to dominate your life because God promises all the way through his word that he will forgive you and and give you a sense of restoration if you bring it to him. Jeremiah 31, 34, famous passage about the new covenant. God promised, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the kind of God I come back to when I blow it. So he's faithful. Faithful to what, verse 9? Faithful to his promise throughout his word that no matter how dark an area of my life is as a Christian, if I bring it to him, he is faithful to let me taste again the forgiveness of the cross. Faithful. He has, he's, he's already made the promise. He can't back out on how much his forgiveness covers. He can't step back when I get into a deep and dark area of my life and, st- and say, that one is too far. He is faithful to the cross of his son. And then just, how does that work? Why is justice in this passage? Because sin is rebellion and, and sin is is breaking his standard. And God is perfect, isn't he? He's perfectly holy, perfectly just, a perfect standard. But he can be just and forgive me because he already poured out his wrath on his son. He already put put his wrath on his son and his son has already atoned for my sin. He took the wrath. Did you know that there's no unpaid for sin in heaven? Did you know that there's no unpunished sin in all of eternity? It's either punished in hell as people take it upon themselves, or your and my sin was punished and put on Christ. Every sin in the universe will be atoned for one way or the other. And he says, listen, I atoned through my son for everything you may fall into, Christian. Just come and I will look at my justice and I will never hold it against you. What freedom in verse 9. If we confess our sins, say the same thing that he does about them. He is faithful. He already promised me his forgiveness will cover it all afresh. No shame going forward. He is faithful to be true to his promise and just there is nothing that we're going to go into in the next couple of weeks. The devil standing in the courtroom of heaven, pointing to your sin and you, and then pointing to God and say, God, how can you accept him? 
How can you love her given what she's done? And we know that the great defense attorney in heaven, who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ will step forward and say, I paid for that too. That's coming ahead, but that's a, he's, he's giving you a little taste of it in verse 9. And by the way, there's the word all again, from all unrighteousness, and it's preceded by the word katharizo to cleanse. In verse 9, you've got no shame in terms of how God sees you, and because you're cleansed as you've confessed it and you brought it out into the light, now there's no shame in how you see you. Cleansed from all unrighteousness. Well, there's a lot there. Here's the third, and I got to run now. Hurts, doesn't it? Stings a little bit, doesn't it? Good, Christian. Good. I'll give you one more, because he gives us one more. Here's the last, and this is so serious that many believe John may be teaching here that if you're doing this, you may not be a Christian at all. This is the ultimate way of leading yourself astray. First the action, then the alternative. Verse 10. If we say, there's the marker again, three things. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You can see the totality of the language. This is different. What does it mean to say that we have not sinned? Most of the commentators look, in this, look at this and say this is a person who denies that sin exists, who denies that people are sinners. Denying not only that you have sinned, but you go farther, denying that you have ever sinned. Perfect tense. If we say we have not sinned, perfect tense in the Greek could be translated, we have not and we do not sin. Now, where is this coming from? Well, there were false teachers. Remember 1 John, one of the reasons he wrote it is to confront the false teaching that was going through those churches. And one of the things the false teachers taught was a dualism. They taught that we are inherently good people. Have you ever heard that lately? They taught, they taught that there are two yous. There's the spirit you and there's the, there's the body you. The spirit you, the spiritual you is good. It's the good you. Your body, however, has evilness in it, and uh, your body gets in trouble. But there's a total separation between you, between the two. There's the spirit me, which is the good me, and then there's the body me, which is the naughty me. That helps you remember it. And so they separated sin. In fact, they were so separate that they believed as long as you knew the right spiritual truths, that you that you are spiritually is fine with the spirit. And you could do whatever you wanted to do, or, or more properly, whatever your body wants to do. That naughty thing is just going to continue to get in trouble, but it really doesn't matter. So you've got two separate lives again, don't you? This is so prevalent in the thinking of people today. People today believe they are inherently good. That's a holdover from the New Age movement over the last 30 years. That's why almost 50% of Christians in that survey I told you about a few weeks ago said that most people are basically good. On occasion, they do some wrong things, but on balance and the essence of who they are, they're good. No, that's biblically garbage. But that's what we think. And if you come into Christianity thinking that, then you can, you're living a double life from the start. And if you come to Jesus thinking you're not coming to him as a savior, you're just coming to him as an added option in your already happy life, you haven't met the Lord Jesus. That's why he says, if you say you have not sinned, you make him a liar, God a liar. And his word is not in you. You haven't heard the true gospel, and you haven't accepted the true gospel. That's why we have so many people around our churches today and occasionally showing up in our churches today in whom there is no light at all. They're living lives of complete darkness. There's a go-to-church occasionally me and a close-down-the-clubs-on-the-weekends me, if you want it in blunt language. I see it all the time. 
I meet other people that that can tell me the place they were and the box they checked when they said, I accepted Christ. But I've seen no fruit, no life, no light, no obedience, no change, no holiness in their life ever since. Based on this text, what are you supposed to believe about that? It's possible that this person never heard the full gospel, the true gospel. They accepted an idea rather than seeing their sin for what it was, repenting of it and coming to the Savior for who he is. Hear me. The broken, watered down, lifeless gospel that so many hear leads them into a life where they're living, verse 10. And it was true back then. These false teachers said, that you can keep your old life and just add Jesus to your spiritual knowledge set. But this is so serious that you're not just lying to yourself like in verse 6. You're calling God a liar because the Bible says you're a sinner in need of a Savior. What's the alternative? Well, look at verse 10 and basically... Reverse the verse. Instead of saying you've not sinned, say you have sinned. Instead of saying what God says about my life in this book doesn't really matter as long as I check the box or as long as I have an emotional experience. No, go into the book and let the light of verse 7 shine on your soul. And maybe for the first time convict you of sin. Don't say you haven't sinned. Say you have sinned. Don't don't throw God out as a standard. Go to him as the standard. Listen to his truth. And finally, let his word penetrate you. Instead of letting his word not be in you and not really worrying about it, let his word penetrate you and convict you. Basically, I think what John is saying here in verse 10, if you're locked in that kind of a life, get saved. And so a good pastor would, wouldn't he? So, fellow Christian, I'm just going to close by asking you myself the question that John asked, the old aging apostle, so directly but lovingly, what do you do when you sin? For most Christians walking under the control of the Holy Spirit, they're growing in what we call sanctification. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But sometimes... Christians can fall into periods of carnality. Christians can have deep battles with certain areas of sin. Christians can wander away from the Lord. But the solution is not to ignore it or rationalize it or, God help you, deny it. But it's to come into the light of who He is and what the cross says about you. 